It's good to be back with you again. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at the benediction at the end of Hebrews 13. I'll mention some of you were here with us last week worshiping the Lord, and we were in Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 10. And one of the big points that we uncovered in that passage was just this emphasis that our God understands us. Jesus is sympathetic with our weakness. He understands our struggles. He's lived life in our skin. And the author of Hebrews clearly means that to be an encouragement to this congregation. This congregation is storm-tossed. It's disoriented. It's discouraged. They've seen people from their own congregation leave the faith. And, And We live in a storm-tossed, discouraging, disorienting time. Uh, I I talk with older people all the time who tell me they've never seen our country and our culture so polarized, uh, so divided, and it's discouraging uh, to them. And, uh, you know, if if you're paying attention to the news, uh, things happening in the world are, are very discouraging and disorienting. The the shooting just this last week in just outside of San Antonio in Uvalde and the loss of those babies. Uh, it's, it's deeply unsettling. And then you look inside the church. Perhaps you've been following the story of our sister uh, denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the revealing of the sexual abuse scandals that have been going on there and covered up there for many, many years. It's a very discouraging disorienting thing, and then things even happening inside our own lives and our own congregations can be deeply discouraging. And so the the author of Hebrews is writing to encourage a discouraged congregation. And this very last prayer, just like the passage we looked at last week, is meant to encourage a discouraged congregation. And uh, it comes in the form of a benediction. You, you get a benediction at the end of every worship service. There's a reason for that, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we read the word, let me just ask you to look at it closely. This is a very simple benediction. The heart of it is in this phrase at the beginning of verse 21, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. Okay, that's, that, that's the, the focus of this prayer of blessing that the author of Hebrews is going to pronounce on you and on this congregation is that God would equip you in everything good to do his will. That's, that's the, and, and that's really, that's going to be the, the focus of our exposition this morning is going to be on that one petition. But around that one petition, uh, you could number, you could outline this prayer different ways. You could outline it in two parts, with verse 20 being one part and verse 21 being another part. That's sort of what I'm going to do for you today, because verse 21 shows you the source of the equipping that you need, and then verse 21 shows you the uh, the means of that equipping. So we could outline it, verse 20.1, verse 21.2, the source of the equipping, the means of the equipping. But before we read it, I want you to notice at least eight parts 
and this will not be an eight-part sermon, I promise you. It's a one-point sermon. But just notice eight parts in this benediction. First, there's the agent or the source of our peace. Notice he begins, now may the God of peace. That's one part of this prayer. And then the action that the God of peace took in order that you might be equipped, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So you have the agent or the source of our peace, and then the action that gives us our peace. He brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Then the identification of Jesus. Rob said we wanted to think about Jesus. Well, listen to this beautiful description of who Jesus is, that great shepherd of the sheep. So appropriate that we would sing the songs that we've sung this morning. The king of love, my shepherd is. He's that great shepherd of the sheep. Why Why that great shepherd of the sheep? We'll see in just a few moments. That's a reference to a very important Old Testament passage. That great shepherd of the sheep. And then you see the basis on which God raised from the dead the great shepherd of sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. So there in one verse you see four parts. We could actually do an eight-part sermon series on these two verses, just looking at each of those parts of this prayer. Then in verse 21, you'll see a fifth part of the prayer, and that's the main petition. I just pointed it out to you. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will. There's the main petition. That's really where we're going to be going in the sermon today. We're going to be showing how all the other parts of this prayer support that petition. But we'll also be asking ourselves this question, why would he pray that for us? Why would he want that for us? Why would he want us to be equipped with every good thing that we may do his will? Then, here's the means by which that petition will be fulfilled. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. There's the means by which that petition is fulfilled. And then, here's the dynamic. Who's the person, who's the power behind that means? Through Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who is the power and the dynamic behind those means. And then, here's the end, the goal. Here's here's where everything in this prayer is going. It's going where? To whom be the glory forever and ever. The glory of God. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. This prayer, the petition that God would equip you for every good work to do His will is to the end of His glory. So just be on the lookout for those eight parts of this Petition, let's stand now and hear the Word of God read. This is the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with 
everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we study His Word together. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So feed us, feed our souls with your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as I mentioned, this congregation was discouraged. There were people that were telling them that they could have everything that Christianity offered without turning their back on their religion, their relatives, and their tradition. These people are very evidently from a Jewish background. Most of the congregation are Jewish Christians. And someone is telling them they can have everything that Christianity offers without turning their back on Judaism, without turning their back on their Jewish relatives, without turning their back on their Jewish culture and customs and traditions if they will just walk away from Jesus. And sadly, some people in this congregation have. You, you, you remember he talks about that in chapter 6 and in chapter 10. There have been some people in this congregation that have professed faith in Jesus Christ that have walked away from him and gone back to Judaism. And this has disturbed and unsettled the whole congregation. They're confused about this teaching that they're hearing that uh, you can turn your back on Jesus and still have all of the blessings that the uh, New Testament talks about belonging to believers in Jesus Christ. It's very, very unsettling to them and disturbing. And so this whole, and, and I've, I've heard this, this epistle, this letter, described as a sermon disguised as a letter. And it, it really is. It's, it, the, the, the author of Hebrews is making a sustained argument, and the argument over and over again is, don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't stop believing in Jesus. Don't stop trusting in Jesus, because if you walk away from him, you walk away from everything. And so, remember we said last week, there's a word repeated 13 times in the letter of the Hebrews, it's the word better. And it's always, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron in the priesthood. Jesus is better than uh, the Old Testament ceremonial law. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. And on and on and on. Jesus is better. And so this whole letter is a sustained argument whereby the author of Hebrews is pleading with you to keep trusting in Jesus. And so when he comes to the end of the letter, he pronounces this benediction. And the benediction sums up so many things that he has talked about in the letter, but it also adds some things uh, that, that just cause your, your, your heart and your mind to explode 
in wonder and love and praise. And I want to think with you for just a few moments this morning about this benediction because when God gives you a benediction, when God gives you a blessing, it's always a blessing you need. God does not give you blessings that you don't need. God's blessings are not extraneous. If God gives you a blessing, you need that blessing. And so this tradition, this practice of ending a worship service with a benediction is a very important thing. It it actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the time of Moses and Aaron. You remember in the book of Numbers, God said to Moses, don't let the people come to worship me without sending them away with a blessing. Don't, don't let the people come to bless me without you sending them away with a blessing. And so God told Moses to tell Aaron, to tell the priests, that whenever the people gathered to worship him, before they left, they were to say what? The Lord bless you. They came to bless the Lord, but you can't out-bless God, can you? So they came to bless the Lord, and what were they to say? Well, the last things they were supposed to hear were, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now notice how this benediction starts. Now. May the God of peace. What's what's the author of Hebrews drawing your attention to? God, who is the agent who will fulfill the petition that he's going to pray for you in verse 21, is the God of peace in himself. In fact, Paul will say of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, Uh, 14, he himself is our peace. So this, this benediction begins by the author of Hebrews reminding you that God himself is our peace. He is the source of our peace. You remember what Jesus says to the disciples at the end of John 16? In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. For I have overcome the world. In the world you have tribulation, but in me you have peace. So the author of Hebrews begins, now may the God of peace. So we, we, we're, we live in a troubled world we'll, filled with sin. There are terrible events like the shooting in Uvalde. There are horrible things that happen in churches that where, where, where we have friends who we know love the Lord Jesus Christ and where the gospel is preached and where men and women and boys and girls are invited to faith in Christ and terrible things happen in those places. And then hard things can happen even in our own congregation and our hearts and our lives. It can be very discouraging and disorienting. And he starts off by saying, Now may the God of peace... And and notice how it's so important how God announces himself and titles himself and describes himself is really important for our faith. You remember when um, Abraham is struggling to believe that God is ever going to fulfill his promise to give him a son? And how does God show up in Genesis 17 to Abraham? He shows up and he says, Abram, I 
am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, God All-Powerful. Now think how applicable that is. What's Abraham struggling with? He's struggling to believe that God is going to fulfill his promises. And what does God say? Let me just remind you, Abraham, who I am. I am God Almighty, God All-Powerful. I can do anything. It's just like when Gabriel shows up to tell Mary that she's going to bear the baby Jesus who is going to come to deliver his people from their sins. And she says, how can that be possible? I'm I'm not married. I'm a virgin. Nothing is impossible for God. The, The Chinese evangelist Leland Wong had on his stationary three verses. He had uh, the verse, the sun stood still. You remember that from the story of Joshua? And then the iron did float. That's the old King James from the floating axe head in the story of Elisha. The sun stood still, the iron did float, This God is our God. And what what was the Chinese evangelist Leland Wong saying by that combination of verses? He's saying, our God can do the impossible. So when the author of Hebrews starts with the God of peace, he's reminding you where your peace comes from. It doesn't come from your circumstances. It doesn't come from the world. It comes from God. That's where your peace comes from. You know, this is, this is not, um, you know, this is not clearing your mind, and, you know, th- this is, think, think of it like this. You're in a boat in a storm-tossed sea, but Jesus is in the boat. You're in a boat in a storm-tossed sea, but Jesus is in the boat. He's the source of your peace, not your circumstances. You remember, um, who was the Scottish pastor who said, maybe it was Robert Murray McChain, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would fear nothing in this world. And yet, as we were reminded earlier, our Savior is interceding for us right now. So the the author of Hebrews is just beginning this benediction by reminding you where your peace comes from. The God of peace is the one who bestows these things. Now notice, what has he done in order to give you peace? He has brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. Is that not extraordinary? In order to fulfill this petition in verse 21, to equip you, with everything good that you may do his will. He has raised his son from the dead. Now this is is huge for you to understand. How much power does it take to give you peace in a sinful world full of tribulation? The power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
How much power does it take for you to be able to do what God created and redeemed you to do? The power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that is at work in you fulfilling this petition. A number of years ago, I was at a conference and John Piper was preaching and he he started his message with these words. I am amazed that I am still a Christian. Now, when, when he made that announcement, he had been a Christian for almost 50 years. And of course, as you can imagine, he had everybody's attention for the rest of the message. Boy, how's this going to play out? And, and what he went on to say is, he, he went on to ask us, how much power do you think it has taken to keep John Piper a Christian? And his answer was, it took the power that raised Jesus from the dead to keep me a Christian. So he asks us to think about God, the God of peace, who raised up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says, he calls him this, that great shepherd of the sheep. What's going on there? That's got Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37 all over it. You remember in Ezekiel 34, God brings a charge against the shepherds of Israel. And he said, you know what? You were supposed to be stewarding the people of God, caring for them, feeding my sheep. And what have you been doing? You've been slaughtering the fat sheep and neglecting the flock. You've been feeding yourselves on the flock instead of feeding the flock. And therefore, God curses the shepherds of Israel, the pastors and the prophets of Israel have not been faithful to his word. And then what does he say in Ezekiel 4, 34 and 37? He says, and you, so you know what I'm going to do? I myself am going to come and shepherd my people. I'm going to come shepherd my people. And I'm going to care for them. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to watch over them. And then you will remember in John 10, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm God in the flesh fulfilling what I said I would do in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. I'm coming in the flesh to care for my people. And that's why the author of Hebrews calls him that great shepherd of the sheep. He, he, in other words, he's the one that God was talking about in Ezekiel 34 and 37. He has come to feed and watch over and care for you. And how has he done that? By the blood of the eternal covenant. Greater love has no man than that he lay down his life for his friends. And the good shepherd came and laid down his life, shed his own blood for his flock, for his sheep, that we might have peace with God, that we might have eternal peace. And the author of Hebrews is just reminding you of all these things. This, this, this is where your peace comes from. This is, this is how far God has gone 
to give you peace. Now, in light of that, here's my prayer for you. And let's just look at what he, what he prays. He prays that this God of peace, who has raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus who is the great shepherd of the sheep promised in the Old Testament, Jesus who has laid down his life by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. Now, why that petition? Okay, if they're troubled by people leaving, turning their backs on Jesus and walking away from the gospel, why that prayer, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will? Well, number one, it's because of this. God wills that we would do his will. God wills that we would do his will. And what is his will? That Christ would be believed. That Christ would be trusted. That Christ would be exalted. He is going to exalt him above every name. That at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what is the will of God? That we should bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and, and, and confess it till our dying breath. So the God of peace equip you with everything good so that you may do his will. Now, this is very, very important. Let's, let's, be, let's very, be very granular and practical here. Th this is not a, a sort of a, an airy-fairy, idealized, abstract sort of prayer. It's very concrete. He's, he's saying, what's going to enable you to live a life that is different from the world around you? So you're not conformed to the world and culture around you. What's going to enable you to live a life that is different from the world around you? That God equipping you in every good thing to do his will. The world's trying to catechize you. The, the world's trying to teach you a very, very different value system. The world's trying to teach you a different way of thinking about life and and the author of Hebrews says, here's what I'm praying for you, that God would equip you with everything good so that you may do his will. What's, what's going to enable you to, to stop living for yourself and, and stop looking out for number one and stop using other people, but rather loving them as God commanded you to love them? I mean, what's, our, our instinct is to be selfish, right? To think about ourselves first and other people second. But God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Care about the well-being of your neighbor. How do you do that? By God equipping you to do everything good to do His will. 
What, what enables you to factor God into the equation of your life and really live for God instead of living for yourself, for your own pleasure, for your own purposes, for your own ambitions, for your own goals? God being at work in you to equip you to do everything good that you may do his will. Let's get even more concrete. What is it that enables you to work with integrity in your vocation? Even if people around you are cutting corners and doing things wrong. You know, I, I... as a pastor, I've lost count of the businessmen and women that have come into my office to say, I'm in a real pickle here because I'm in a group or a department or in a business where I am being asked not to do wrong things but to overlook wrong things being done. And if I blow the whistle, I lose my job. I've lost count of those conversations being in the pastorate for 30 years now. It happens all the time. You're asked to overlook wrong things being done. How how do you work with integrity in your vocation? Okay, How, How about this? How do you bear up in a hard relational situation in your life? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's a wife with a husband who has neglected her. And she's she's fearful and she's worried about her future and about the future of her children. She trusts Jesus, but she's in a very vulnerable situation. How do you live for God in that situation? Only by God equipping you with everything good that you may do his will. How how do you willingly and joyfully go on in the Christian life while you're battling a besetting habitual sin? What if you're battling a besetting habitual sin? You need God equipping you with everything good to do his will. How do you you bear fruit in someone else's life? You need God to equip you with every good thing that you may do His will. In other words, God has not saved you and then sent you off and said, okay, you're on your own. Go out there and live the Christian life. Everything that we do is dependent on what he's doing in us. Everything that we do is dependent on what he is doing in us. Augustine prayed this prayer, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Now, by the way, Pelagius hated that prayer. Pelagius thought, if God commands it, you're able to do it. And Augustine knew his own heart. He knew knew that sometimes God commanding you to do something makes you not want to do it. And so he said, Lord, 
you can command me to do anything you want to command me to do as long as you will help me do it. Command what you will, but give what you command. That's what the author of Hebrews is praying for you. Lord, don't call them to do something that you won't help them do. Don't, don't ask them to do what you won't equip them to do. Don't command them to do what you are not going to enable them to do. And then he gets even more specific. Look at the next phrase. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So take that all together. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And have you ever paused to, to think how often in the New Testament that emphasis is made? If, if you have your Bibles, follow along with me really quickly. Let's look at several passages. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you're, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And then listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, I want you to get this clear, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by God so that you can do good works. You're not saved by your good works. You're saved by God by grace through faith so that you can do good works. It's God's grace at work in you, creating in you the life that does good works. Or Romans 6, 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. So Paul thanks God that the Romans became obedient. He does not thank the Romans that they became obedient. Did you catch that? Thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient. Not thanks be to you, Clemson Perez, that you became obedient. Thanks be to God that you became obedient. God's the one who is the source and cause of your obedience. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. We pray for you always that our God will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you. So when you fulfill every desire for goodness, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. You don't get the glory, Jesus gets the glory. Why? Because the reason you do this is because of the work of Christ in you. Or Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Or 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words, the giver gets the glory because God is the one 
who, is able, who enables us to serve him, he gets the credit for our service. Or Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, our attitudes, our Christian character, our behaviors, they are the fruit of the work of the Spirit in us, not ultimately the fruit of our own efforts. Our efforts are essential, but they are not finally decisive. All of this to say is this. God not only understands us and sympathizes us, God is at work in us now. So when that mother who buried that four-year-old boy who died of cancer, her son, wakes up in the morning, how does she go on caring for her other two children, being a mother, being involved in their school, being involved in volunteer work, being a godly Christian wife, how does she go on? Because God is at work in her. He had not say, okay, you're on your own. Do it yourself. God is at work in her life. What, what about the Christian who has a debilitating illness that's never going to go away? And in fact, it's going to get worse and worse. How do you go on? I have a, have a good, good friend who's a PCA minister who suffers the ongoing effect of Lyme's disease, and he's never, ever going to be freed of it. They will try and mitigate the, the various uh, uh, symptoms, but they can't make those symptoms go away. He's, gonna have to, he's had to adjust. I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. How do you go on and not be bitter and not be angry and not be frustrated because God is at work in you. The, the author of Hebrews is saying God not only understands you, he's not only sympathetic with your weakness, he is at work with you, in you. It's his power in you that's keeping you, that's giving you peace, that's giving you the ability to do everything that you're called to do. Here's another prayer of Augustine. Augustine said, you'll find this in the Confessions. That's a book you ought to read. He says this, Lord, everything good in me is due to, due to you. Everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. Isn't that beautiful? Everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. The author of Hebrews is just reminding you, what keeps you the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead? What enables you to do the hard things that we're called to do in the Christian life? The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Because God did not save you and say, okay, now you're on your own. He gives you what you need to live the Christian life. And we need to know that, friends. We need to know that. And then those beautiful words, 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. The author of Hebrews points us to what God has done in order to give us peace. And then he petitions us for God to be at work in our lives through Christ Jesus. So we were not only saved and forgiven and accepted and adopted through the work of Jesus Christ, but we are kept and strengthened and we persevere through the work of Jesus Christ. God is at work in us to equip us with everything good that we may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And if we weren't, we wouldn't stand a chance. But because He is, the gates of hell will not prevail against His people. Because He promised that He Himself would come and shepherd His flock. And He sent the Good Shepherd, that great shepherd of the sheep, to shepherd His flock and lay down His life for His sheep. And He will keep them, and He will bear them, and He will help them in every circumstance of life. So no matter how unsettling and disorienting our times are, we have a shepherd that will never leave us, never forsake us, never fail us. And the power that is at work in us through Him is the same power that raised Him again from the dead. That's good news to hear. That's a good shepherd to believe in. And boy, do we need him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for that great shepherd of the sheep. And we ask, O oh Lord, that we would be conscious that our hope and our dependence is in him. Not in our own strength, not in our own goodness, not in our own aspirations, what we want to be but in His power to equip us in every good thing to do His will by working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Lord God, give us that hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.